Hello, everyone. I'm Anthony Pastore, the head of broadcast communications for UBS. Thank you so much for joining me for this special program called State of Play. I'm joined today by UBS's Chief Investment Officer America, Salida Marcelli, and Henry McVeigh, the head of global macro and asset allocation from KKR. Salida and Henry, thank you so much for being here with us today. We have a lot to get to, not to mention it is certainly an absolutely crazy time for the markets. We had a recent Fed meeting. We've got a lot of volatility in the equity markets, so I want to get right to it. And Henry, we just heard from Jay Powell yesterday. As we know, the Fed decided to raise 50 basis points at the meeting. Just wanted to get from you maybe some of the takeaways that you had from the press conference that came after the meeting and how it might affect your outlook for inflation and monetary tightening. Okay, great. Th thanks for having me. Um, so a couple things I'd say. One is Chairman Powell told us that inflation is still too high, right? And he's going to do, he said, at least uh, 50 basis points in consecutive uh, meetings. So that's substantial. Uh, the second thing is he said the labor market is too tight and he needs to cool that down. And then the third thing he said is that demand is too strong. And so he's going to use his blunt instruments, which are, which are uh, interest rates and, and draining of the balance sheet, to try to affect that. Um, ultimately, he also said one of the things that I thought was interesting, he constantly referenced the slowdown in China. And um, it was almost like he wanted us to know that supply chains are going to stay busy for some time. So what does it mean for our forecast? I mean, we are in the camp that we are going to have higher structural inflation. We do think it's going to come down from recent levels, but we think relative to last cycle, last cycle it averaged kind of one and a half to two. This time we think it's going to be somewhere between two and four. Um, we think the Fed's going to continue to raise rates aggressively right now because it needs to try to blunt the inflation impulse that investors and consumers are now feeling. And I think that over time, that's going to create more volatility in the, in, the, in the capital market. So from our standpoint, I think what we've been talking about is this is a different type of recovery. We've written about this. We've talked about it. There are really a couple of things that are different. One is we have supply chain issues, uh, supply side issues, not demand issues. We've always been in an environment in the past two decades where any inflation was driven by excess demand. This time, it's by uh, not having enough supply. That's harder to fix. The second thing is we probably overstimulated fiscally and, and from a monetary standpoint, that takes time to, to work through the system. And then the third thing that's also difficult is just around geopolitics. Uh, the Russian-Ukraine war ultimately is an aggravation of what we've been arguing at KKR, which is we've moved from this period of benign uh, globalization to great power competition. And that means you're going to have to different, have a different lens through which how you um, allocate capital and, and where you make investments. We'll get to that later, but that, that, that's really our base conclusion. So back to you. Great. Terrific, Henry. Yeah, and, and not surprising that that's where your base case is. So we're looking at inflation from the rise in oil. We're looking at inflation from the fears of uh, these slowdowns with supply chain. There's still 2.5 million people in Shanghai who are under strict lockdown orders. So, you know, again, the, the fears continue to grow. So, Salida, you know, we have certainly seen market anxiety grow over the prospect of a recession. The question keeps coming up often. I'm sure you're hearing it from many of our advisors and clients. Are we in, you know, are we in the direction of a recession here? Do you think that the Fed can successfully engineer a soft landing given all of the data that's out there and all of these uncertainties that we're focusing on right now. Yeah, thanks Anthony and great to be with you again and also with Henry. Look, I mean, clearly as Fed Chair Powell himself acknowledged at the press conference yesterday, Fed is in a very difficult position 
uh, with the war in Ukraine and lockdowns in China, both adding to our inflation problems. And these global risks are outside of Fed's control. And that certainly increases the risk of a hard landing. But I would say we share the Fed's view that there is a plausible path to a soft landing. We expect inflation uh, to fall this year, uh, but remain above pre-pandemic ranges, which is exactly, I think, what Henry just said is it's his view as well. There's a new range. Uh, pandemic distortions are fading. Uh, we're starting to see spending shift towards services and goods inflation decline. Um, and adverse base effects are starting to reduce. So as we enter the second half of the year, we should begin to see data uh, that shows inflation is moderating from its pandemic highs. And I think that should allow the Fed to be more gradual in its approach. Uh, also, Powell noted yesterday, right, the market is in effect doing the job for the Fed already. Mortgage rates have climbed more than 200 basis points to 5.5%, uh, which should help cool down housing. And we should see this play out also in other interest rate sensitive segments, like I, I, I would say autos, right, financial conditions have tightened. Uh, we had that brief relief rally yesterday as the 75 basis point increase was taken off the table. But today we're back to where we started. Uh, the fact is the markets are in a show me mindset. So until we see data that says inflation is moderating, markets are going to be on edge about recession risk. So I'm very much on the same page with Henry about the continued volatility here. I think the key here uh, for the Fed is to cool wage growth, uh, which is currently too high to be compatible with the Fed's inflation target. And that is, of course, super tricky. If the labor force participation rates do not improve, um, the Fed will have to cool demand for the overall economy to get that wage growth down. And again, as Powell acknowledged yesterday, it is tough to be really surgical about this. Uh, but we have a very high vac vacancy rate with nearly two job openings for every available worker that allows room to cool demand without causing a rise in unemployment. So in our soft landing scenario, um, the Fed hikes just enough to allow record job openings to fall to pre-pandemic levels, restoring balance between demand and supply and leaving a strong labor market. In a hard landing, we would see an actual unemployment levels go up. And I think, you know, the other thing I, I would note, of course, here is that, you know, despite all the talk of recession, economic indicators still tell a very positive story. We're seeing strong business and consumer spending, labor market is very healthy, housing market is resilient, despite higher mortgage rates, um, and there are no signs of excess in the economy. So are we going to see a slowdown? Probably, as we're further along the economic cycle now, and we're likely to see a slowdown in Europe uh, because of the higher energy prices and China's growth is taking a hit because of lockdowns. But we don't believe we will tip over into a recession just yet, not in the next 12 months. There's still a lot of momentum in the economy. But of course, I would say beyond that, eventually we're going to see a recession. Eventually business cycle comes to an end and maybe 2024 is a coin toss. You know, but it's interesting, Salita, and thank you for sharing that with us, uh, and that's, that's great insight. But, you know, we think about what's going on right now, particularly with the war in Ukraine. There is risk of a further escal escalation there in that, sh uh, that particular uh, war between Ukraine and Russia. No one really knows where it's going at this point. And there's possible slowdowns in China because of those lockdowns that we were just talking about earlier. How do those 
potential scenarios and those risks play into your view on the U.S. economy? So, you know, the war in Ukraine obviously has escalated with Russia now weaponizing gas uh, by cutting off supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. Um, the European Union is now moving towards a phased out of, you know, phased out of Russian crude oil in, you know, six months and all products by the end of the year. So these developments, yes, certainly put pressure on energy prices and any additional disruptions will only mean higher prices. So this presents a risk to headline inflation numbers in the United States. Also, you know, if energy shortages force Europe to cut production, uh, this will further disrupt supply chains. In our base case, Anthony, you know, we now see a higher likelihood of further interruption to gas supplies in Europe, which is likely to cause that economic stagnation or, you know, maybe mild contractions in the targeted European countries. Uh, but a full cutoff of Russian gas supplies to Europe, which would cause a Eurozone-wide recession, just yet it's not in our base case scenario. Now, if that downside scenario of a recession in Europe were to materialize, it would, of course, hurt the U.S. economy uh, because Europe is a big export market for the United States. Uh, China's zero COVID uh, tolerance policy, again, complicates the supply chain problems we're having. If needed parts and materials imported from China become unavailable, U.S. manufacturing production will be restrained. And further with you know, the Fed hiking rates to slow inflation, any supply side shocks um, that add to inflationary pressure will be damaging. So so far, we're seeing the Chinese government is focused on mitigating the impact of the lockdowns and also providing a lot of fiscal and monetary policy support to the Chinese economy. In our base case, Chinese factories mostly stay open and the economic impact on the United States won't be that great. So overall, I would say on our base case, both the war in Ukraine and China lockdowns pose a bigger threat to inflation than the immediate growth outlook. Um, and this is something we will continue monitoring, but it is hard to, um, you know, call it at this second. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that, that's why they call it uncertainty. It's very hard to see. If we all had the crystal ball, it would be a very different story. So, Salida, thank you. Uh, Henry, I want to bring you back in and let's go back to the markets here because uh, as we're speaking, we've got the Dow Jones, S&P 500 down more than 3%. On top of that, 10-year yields are now above 3%, uh, about 310 right now. Yield, uh, real yields are turning positive. So how does your outlook, how is it affected by the fact that we see rates rising, especially for valuations in equity and credit markets? Yeah. So remember at KKR, so we manage just under half a trillion dollars in assets. Most of our investments are you know somewhere between five and ten years so we're trying to figure it out over the cycle um, and that's that's really the way we focus from our standpoint there are a couple of things that jump out anthony one would be that credit looks more attractive than than equities right now particularly at the front end of the curve uh, i think there are things around mortgages and and other types of clo liabilities that are actually uh, quite interesting but you're there's a mismatch right now the, the the bond market and the credit markets have moved more abruptly even though the equity market is down today when you think about fundamental repricings the the corporate yields are attractive relative to the earnings yield on stocks so to me from an asset allocation standpoint you would want to to move there from a pure valuation standpoint on equities we've come down from about 21 times down to kind of 17 times. Um, it really matters. You, know, you can't just look at that in isolation. You got to look at it relative to interest rates. And we, when we forecast out over this cycle, 
we see long-term yields, as I mentioned, higher, but not running out of control. I think it's amazing that the bond yields have moved up as much as they have, and we're now talking about uh, real yields just turning positive. Remember before the pandemic, real yields were positive 100 basis points, uh, and, and right now we're talking about them being positive four or five. So relative to history, we're in a very low, low environment for, for real, real yields. And it speaks to this world where uh, what happened in the first quarter, GDP actually contracted 1.4% on a real basis, but nominal GDP was uh, 6.5%. And so what you're seeing is people that have pricing power, people that have unit volume, they're going to do well. And so the, the market is bifurcating between the price makers, those that can pass prices through, and the price takers. And we saw this movie before in the early 2000s when China built out its fixed investment. It, you know, there was demand for iron ore, oil, other commodities, U.S. housing was booming. Right now, instead of China, China building out its fixed investment, it's the energy transition or the lack of the energy transition that's driving up commodity prices. And it's being aggravated by the Russia-Ukraine war and by the, the supply chain issues in China. That ultimately means that valuations are going to come down because, as I, as I mentioned earlier, inflation is going to be at a higher resting heart rate. But within the within the market, that's really where the story is. It's, it's this bifurcation of price makers that are going to see their valuations go up and price takers that are going to see it go down. So we have to think about it on a kind of a five to 10 year basis. And what we, we have brought down our exit multiples. But within that, and I think you see this in our portfolios and where we're deploying capital, we've overweighted areas where we feel like they have that pricing power. And so the story uh, for the equity markets as well as for the credit markets are going to be unit volume, pricing power. Overall, though, given how much wood the Fed has chopped, uh, the credit markets, particularly at the front end across mortgages, credit, uh, CLO liabilities, they look more interesting to me than some of the, the equities. And the volatility adjusted return, I think, will be quite favorable, too. Doesn't mean you can't own equities. You should. They're a great inflation hedge. But there's some value where the baby is being thrown out with the bathwater across different parts of the, the credit markets. And, and as a firm, uh, we found ways to, or we're finding ways how, how to deploy capital behind that. Great, thank you, Henry. Yeah, and we're you know we're always talking about having a well diversified portfolio, especially in in times of uncertainty like these. So, Salida, kind of piggybacking off of what Henry's saying here, what are some of the ways that you are right now advising clients to prepare for this higher volatility and higher inflationary environment? Uh, well, our positioning has gradually shifted over the <coughs> past year. Uh, to align with a higher inflationary environment. And as I said earlier, you know, although we expect inflation to fall, we expect it to stay above pre-pandemic wages. So we have been highlighting our preference for uh, value stocks over growth. Uh, although we are further along in the economic cycle with some economic indicators pointing to more late cycle, value stocks tend to do better in a high inflation and rising rate environment. Our analysis shows that more value stocks tend to outperform growth when CPI is above 3%, even when leading indicators like ISM are falling. So this is also part of the reason we have been uh, sort of tilting towards even geographically to uh, places in the world where there is a more value to like the United Kingdom, Australia, as you know, preferred regions within our equity allocations, given their value to Now, Within equity sectors, uh, we still recommend a balance of cyclicals and defense, global energy, 
a value sector that is still discounting oil at only uh, $70 a barrel. Um, we also recommend trading at attractive uh, valuations uh, relative to their historical average. So as rates move higher, uh, and then we're also seeing some pockets of opportunities emerging within fixed income. Uh, we, you know, in our portfolios and our allocations, you know, where we have the scale like least preferred, neutral, or most preferred, we did remove U.S. government bonds from least. Now they're more favorable to us, and we recommend getting, I would say, less short duration in portfolios. We're not ready to get go long duration, but less short uh, now that we have seen yields rise as much as they did. Now, allocating commodities also um, has been serving and will continue to serve, I think, as a hedge against inflation and geopolitical risk. The correlation of commodities and equities has fallen to nearly zero recently, and we see room for another 10% move up in total return for broad commodity indices over the next uh, six months. And then uh, maybe, you know, the most inexpensive way to protect your portfolio is you know, to diversify across asset classes, including considering exposure to alternatives like hedge funds, private markets, direct real estate, and um, real, yeah, just in general, real estate as real assets can help investors preserve real wealth over the long term if inflation stays high. But I think Henry made great points in uh, there's opportunities in private credit. Um, so all of those we are employing in our portfolios as well. Terrific. So Lita, thank you very much. And Henry, let me, let me ask the final question of you. As the CIO of KKR's $30-plus billion balance sheet, what asset classes and strategies have you been leaning into the most and why? Okay. So I think we'll probably sound uh, somewhat familiar to Salida. So we kind of have four mega themes for our balance sheet. One is uh, the move towards real assets. We've been particularly active around um, infrastructure uh, as well as real estate. Uh, I'd say real estate credit looks, looks interesting here. Uh, that's point one. Point two is we've been overweight secular compounders, companies that have simple unit economics, dental businesses, veterinarian businesses, things that can, can co compound cash flow on a long-term basis. Uh, the third is uh, we're still very super bullish on savings. Uh, we actually went out and bought 60 plus percent of an insurance company that does retirement savings. Uh, that's something that we believe given the intergenerational wealth transfer. So that's, that's an interesting business for us. And then finally, we continue to build out our, our Asia portfolio. I know Asia is out of favor right now, but uh, what we're seeing across credit there, infrastructure, uh, certain areas of private equity and real estate, are, are quite interesting. And there's a huge corporate carve-out um, uh, kind of phenomenon taking place in places like Korea and Japan that's been really good for our private equity business. Thematically, I'll just close with a couple themes. One is we talked about pricing power earlier. The second is the, the security of everything, right? The, the war essentially it aggravates our narrative. And our narrative is that you're going to need to have security and redundancy around everything from water to food to energy to healthcare, to data, to communications. And that's going to lead to a mega boom in the CapEx cycle. And so that's something we're investing behind. And then ultimately, uh, I think the other big theme where people should be focused is on digitalization, automation, things that can uh, replace a world where labor is in short supply. Salida mentioned that earlier around wages. Certainly, we own over 200 companies globally. Uh, we do see staffing shortages affecting wage growth. 
uh, and putting upward pressure on that. And so there are ways that you can make your businesses more efficient using technology. So look, there's a lot of cross currents. I've been doing macro for 20 plus years and that's for and been in the business over 30. There's always some um, you know thing that's going to be unsettling. What we need to do as investors, and I think you've heard from Salida and me, is, is to focus longer term. Where can you find value? Get the themes right. Ultimately, be diversified from an asset allocation standpoint, and then check in on how your asset allocation is doing that. And that's what we're doing with the balance sheet. We have tilted down our growth exposure the past couple of years, and we've tilted up our real assets. But otherwise, it's running a diversified portfolio. I think KKR is somewhat unique that we're probably 85% private investments uh, and 15% cash. Uh, that's quite different than what most individual investors do. So there are always different nuances, and it's important to get the themes right, to work with the financial advisor to, to make sure you're achieving that, and then retest your thesis along the way. So I hope that provides some color, what we're seeing from our perch and at KKR. And obviously, just would close by saying thank you for having me, and, and we appreciate the partnership. Yeah, absolutely, Henry. We appreciate your partnership uh, on our side as well. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day and on a very uh, volatile market, to, to say the least. So, Henry McVeigh, thank you very much for joining us, Global Head of Macro uh, and Asset Allocation from KKR. Henry, thank you. And, of course, thanks to our very own Chief Investment Officer, America, Salida Marcelli. Thank you both. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Great. Take care. And we'll see you soon. And for more information on anything we talked about today and, of course, the comments and content coming from UBS, as well as partners like KKR, you can visit our website at UBS.com forward slash views. And, of course, if you have any questions about what we spoke about today, make sure to talk to your financial advisor. Until next time, I'm Anthony Pastore. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Investing in an alternative investment fund is speculative and involves significant risks. For a discussion on these risks, please visit UBS.com slash CIO dash disclaimer dash NTA. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 